0: you please stay standing for me? Um, We're going to read God's word. Uh, We're going to read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. You guys can be seated. This is our text this morning. Uh, for many, it is called the Great Commission. And one of the reasons why we're examining this text and looking at this text is uh, not only are they Matthew's last recorded words of Jesus on earth before he ascends to heaven, uh, our movement of churches is called Great Commission Churches, but we are also going through a series called Core Values. And those core values are one of the things as a church that, that we hope, that we desire, that we long, and that we commit to in Scripture. And so we started this series uh, three weeks ago, and we looked at grace, And not only grace, God's grace has saved us, but that we need and depend on grace every day and that God's desire is that we would even be grace bearers and and pointing to his grace every day. Then last week we looked at commitment to God and his word and what does it look like when God's word just seems dark, that God's not speaking to you. And we looked at how God's word is committed to God, God's word is committed to his glory, and the things that we don't see God's word is doing is for our good. And so we are invited into the story to just read God's word. And then this morning, we'll be looking at commitment to God and his word. So that's what we're teaching through. That's our series. But I wanted to, to, to say that when we look at the Great Commission, maybe we come to the Great Commission and we make several mistakes Three major mistakes that we have when we read this text. And I've made these mistakes. The first is this. We begin the Great Commission in the wrong place. The second mistake is we misunderstand to whom the command is given. And the third mistake when we read the Great Commission is we don't know why the disciples thought this was crazy. We make those mistakes. So this morning, we'll be unpacking how do we correct those mistakes and have a right theological understanding of the Great Commission. So we're going to start in verse 16, and and what we're going to do is we're just going to read the verse, um, and then we'll unpack the contents. So verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. So uh, I'm in seminary. I'm in the third year in seminary. And, and one of the craziest things about seminary is the professors. They're crazy. But it's so awesome because they've given their, their lives to studying God's word. And one of the things that our professor from uh, John said is when you read the Bible. Is that better? All right. Awesome. Is this better? Sorry for the feedback, guys. Um, When you read the Bible, he said, everything is Exodus. And he has this like wild crazed mad professor look in his face. And then he says it four more times. Everything is Exodus. Everything is Exodus. And you're like, whoa, bro. And then you start reading scripture and you're like, wow. Everything is about God taking his people from a point of slavery and bondage to a new land. Whether it was the Hebrews in Egypt who he rescued, whether it was his people in exile in Babylon who he brought back, and whether it's us who are dead to sin, but now he's brought to life through his son. Everything in scripture is Exodus. And we come to this text in Matthew 16 and we start to read it and we start to see it for a couple reasons. Number one, as I said, The mountain that these disciples were at, they just weren't having a picnic lunch on a mountain and Jesus shows up. Jesus directed them to a specific mountain because he wanted to meet with them there. It sounds a lot like Exodus when God directs his people to, to come out of Egypt to Mount Sinai so he can meet with them there so they may worship him. Jesus directs them to this mountain But what's something a little bit different from Sinai is this truth that in Acts 1-3 we read that for 40 days before Jesus directs them to this mountain, so from his resurrection to this last meeting on this mountain, 40 days, Jesus is among them and appearing to them and teaching them and with them. Appearing to over 500 people at once and then appearing to his family. It's very different than Exodus in Mount Sinai when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and no one could see God and no one knew where Moses was. It's different. But nonetheless, we have to say maybe there's something going on about from Exodus in this passage. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Again, as I shared, they saw Christ. They saw this man who had resurrected. Scars in his side, scars in his feet, scars in his hand. They see something impossible. They see God in their midst, and they worship Him. And then some doubt. And this is really interesting because we have to ask ourselves: Well, is doubting okay? Do we worship and doubt at the same time? Is that possible? But Matthew, who writes this gospel, he uses the word doubt in one other place. And the Greek word is distazo. And he uses it in Matthew 14. And we're going to turn there in a second and read the few verses that, that Matthew is trying to bring his readers back to. This whole idea of worship and doubt, we've seen it before in Matthew. It's the story of the disciples who are rowing back across the Sea of Galilee and the wind is against them and Jesus decides to pray the whole night and then catch up with them. And so Jesus' power walks across the Sea of Galilee while the disciples are still rowing and it's windy and the disciples look out and they see Jesus and like any normal person, they're terrified seeing a guy who's walking across water. And let's go there and read what happens. And again, Matthew 14, we'll flip over there. Verses 25 through 33 is the whole story. But Peter says, hey, if it's really you, command me to come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat, and then he starts to sink because he's no longer looking at Jesus, but he's looking at the wind and the waves, and he's scared. And this is what Jesus says in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. And so this whole, whole question of doubt in this passage is immediately answered by Jesus Christ when he draws near, he reaches out his hands and he says, it is I, it's me. And these disciples on this mountaintop, they worship him, truly you are the son of God. I can't help but think they are all remembering what happened in Matthew 14. They're all remembering this place of doubt, this place of uncertainty. And Jesus immediately reaches out and saves them. And so they worship him. And what's interesting about this is every single gospel writer, he, he deals with doubt differently after the post-resurrection. For Matthew, it's the story of the Great Commission. They're on this mountain, and some people are doubting. Remember what happened to Peter. Let's worship him. He truly is the Son of God. For Mark, it's the women who go to the tomb, and it's empty, And they come back and tell the disciples, and the disciples are like, ah, we're not buying it. We're amazed, but we're still doubting. For Luke, it's the same thing. It's the same story, except not only is it the women who've told the disciples and they're doubting, but then it's these two guys on the road to Emmaus who are doubting all of these things. And Jesus actually comes alongside them, walks with them, explains to them, and then they see that it's true. And they believe in him and and they worship him. And then last, it's John, right? The most personal story, the story of Thomas who doubts. And so, what we see is a really beautiful move by all the gospel writers to address this question of doubt. I mean, did Jesus really die on the cross and resurrect, and is he the Son of God? And all of them answer yes, he is. Let's keep reading. Again, back to Matthew 28. We're going to verse 18. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'd love to just point out that Jesus came near. Jesus is the God who comes to us. God who's clothed himself in flesh and has come to us. This is unlike the gods of the rest of the world. The gods in the ancient Near East, and the Greco-Roman Empire, they don't come to you. You come to them and worship them. And if they do come to you, they mess with you because that's what they like to do. They like to mess with humanity. And we see a God who comes to us and he chooses to love humanity, to lay down his life for humanity. And then he shares something radical with him. He shares all authority has been given to him. Now, if you're one of the 11 disciples who you're there on this mountain, you're worshiping and Jesus says this, this is crazy and radical because there's only one person who has all authority on heaven and earth. And that's God. That is their God. That is Yahweh. And Jesus is equating himself as identical and equal with Yahweh. He has all the authority of the God that they've worshipped for thousands of years. This is radical to the disciples. And what's radical about this also is that Jesus says he has been given this authority. He has not taken the authority. And I think this is really important. It's so important, number one, that again, the Greek verbs are passive in nature, so he's been given the authority. Jesus is unlike any other ruler or king of the world. Because all the other rulers and kings of the world, they take authority. He has been given authority. And what does that look like for our lives? Don't we struggle with the same thing? Don't we try to take authority, to grab control, to have ambition? That's how things get done, right? I would just posit to say that even in my life, it's the times where I've been given authority, trusted with leadership, where that leadership and authority has worked best. Um, it's not good in an argument with your wife when you're like, hey, I'm the guy and I've got the authority. You know, I haven't been smacked yet, but those arguments have not ended well. They've ended poorly. But when I demonstrate through my love and my care and my devotion to my wife that I have her best interest in heart. That's when authority and leadership tend to work very well and very synergistically. I don't know how that applies to you and your context. Maybe that's something that you're struggling with in marriage or at your job. Where you want to take authority and grab control. But we see Jesus as one who's been given authority by the Father because of his covenant obedience, because of his faithfulness, because of his trustworthy character of a man who does not sin but obeys the Father in all things. And so we come to these three mistakes that we've talked about. Again, we shared at the start of the teaching these three mistakes We begin the Great Commission in the wrong place. We misunderstand to whom the command is given, and we don't know why the disciples thought this was crazy. We're going to unpack this a little bit more, but before we do, we've already seen the answer to all three of those things, because we tend to, as the evangelical church, start the Great Commission in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But you see, the Great Commission doesn't start there. In fact, the disciples didn't even think that was the most radical part what Jesus was saying. And so we'll look at those three mistakes real quick, just to put them back on your radar. We begin the Great Commission in the wrong place. Why? Because the Great Commission started in verse 16 when Jesus appointed his disciples to gather at a designated place. And then what did they do when they gathered there? They worshiped him. This is where the Great Commission starts. It starts with our worship of Jesus Christ gathered together in the place that he is appointed. The second thing, we misunderstand to whom the command is given because we think the command is given to like us as individuals. Like I'm given the great commission and Jesus gives the command to the 11 disciples. He gives the command to a corporate body. He doesn't give the command to individuals. He gives it to his corporate church to be fulfilled by his corporate church. And then last, we don't know why the disciples thought he was crazy, why this command was crazy. They thought this command was crazy because Jesus is saying all authority has been given to him. This is why the Great Commission is crazy. It doesn't rest on performance of ours. It doesn't rest on our going or our making disciples or our doing other things. It rests on the authority of Jesus Christ, So let's jump into the next verse and and read what that looks like. Verse nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I'll share first. I love this phrase, "Go and make disciples." We see it all the time. We put it on, you know. Um, you know our mugs, our T-shirts, our church walls, and what if "go and make disciples" is kind of a bad English translation of what the Greek text is? But it's easier to say that because it's it makes more sense in the English language to say "go and make disciples." But that's not what Jesus is saying. And allow me allow me to to prove that to you from Scripture. So the first, this idea of go. Um, it's a verb, go, but it's not in an active voice. It's not in a command voice. If I want my little kid to go and do something, I say, go get it. Go get this for me, Noah. Go do that for me. It's kind of a command. But the, the, the text puts the verb in passive. And if it's in passive, then it's not a command. It just means as you're going. As you're about your life, as you're doing things, as you're out and about, the marketplace, your work, the city, your travels, this is what it means. And so then we say, where does God tell something like that to his people? God says something like that to his people in Genesis 1:28. Flip there. Genesis 1:28 says this. It's at the height of creation. God has just finished creating man and woman in his own image. He blesses them. And it says this in 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And God continues to say, go into the earth and fulfill it. And fill it, multiply it, rule over it, subdue it. But it's passively, as you multiply, as you grow, go out into the world as you're going. It's the cultural mandate for us to be salt and light in this earth while we're living our daily lives. And then we come to the next word, make disciples, and this is where God gives the command. If you're reading this aloud to people and you're reading it aloud in Greek, you would emphasize this word. And you'd emphasize it by literally saying, disciple. So it's as you were going, disciple. It's not go and make disciples. You see how we've maybe flipped the emphasis? And I think we've flipped the emphasis, and what it's done is it's really robbed people of the beauty a feeling like they're on mission as a professional, as a student, as an athlete. And it said, actually, like, only, like, the hotshot, like, church people who are missionaries or pastors are the ones who are going. It's a command to us all, as we are going, disciple. So how do we disciple is the next question. We go out and start a bunch of Bible studies and share the gospel a lot. Those things are great and good, and we need to be doing those. But that's not what the text says. The text says we disciple by baptism. And that's kind of weird because that's like, well, God, isn't that like starting on like step two or three or four? Like what about them saving, being saved? What about them believing? Remember who holds the authority? In the Great Commission, Jesus Christ holds the authority in the Great Commission. So Jesus Christ is the one who's going to bring them to a point of repentance and regeneration. Jesus Christ is going to bring them to the point of saying, I believe and want to be publicly recognized as belonging to the church. So our role in the Great Commission is to join the authority of Jesus. And yes, we still go on mission trips, and yes, we still share the gospel, but we can't force anybody to believe. It doesn't work like that. We don't have the authority to twist people's arm. Instead, Jesus Christ regenerates their hearts to the point where they believe that they are sinners and that there's only one man who can save them, the man who rose from the dead, the man who reaches down and in the middle of their doubt pulls them up from drowning. And they say, truly, you are the son of God. This is who saves and so baptism, we, we join Christ when we baptize and publicly recognize the new people of God, and they come in to our churches. And this is a beautiful thing. It was so beautiful. A couple weeks ago, we, uh, we saw four kids, uh, I think ages like five to, to seven, get baptized in our church at the beach. It is a beautiful thing. In my mind, as a pastor, I'm thinking, oh, great commission. Praise God. It is a beautiful thing. And what is baptism? Baptism is both Trinitarian, right? It expresses true belief, God the Father, Jesus' Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are many people who are part of churches, and those churches are not Trinitarian. And so they are not followers of Christ. They're followers of someone else. Their father is not God. Their father still remains the devil. And then the Great Commission is also ecclesial. And that's just a fancy word for saying church. Is that part of the Great Commission? When you baptize someone, you baptize them into the church. And what is the church? The church is a place where the word of Christ is preached, where sacraments are administered, and when there's also, also church discipline. And we've kind of said, well, the people are the church. We've also said, you know, buildings aren't churches. And I think sometimes we, like, missed there. We've kind of misstepped. Because buildings are not churches, but you know what are churches? Places. Places because that's where the people gather. So wherever the the body of Christ is gathered in a place, there the church is. And there's, we're preaching the sacraments of baptism and communion happen. This is what they're baptized into. They're baptized into the church. Let's read the last verse. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So what is the church's responsibility? To teach all that Christ commands. Well, what did Christ command? Christ did a great job of commanding all the truths of the Old Testament, and so we teach both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We teach all that Christ commands. So the Great Commission, we oftentimes think it's this great, like missionary punch to like reach the nations. Well, Jesus is going to reach the nations. But he wants his bride, his church, to be faithful to the mission that he's going to accomplish by his authority. And so the Great Commission is a charge to us as the church to baptize and to preach and teach the gospel everything that Jesus has commanded. The Great Commission is for the church. It's for us. It's meant to pattern our lives last we get to the last clause, Jesus says, look. Um, Again, this is a command. Some of your translations have remember. This idea of look and remember, we have to go back to the Old Testament to figure out what that means. Because whenever God says, look and remember, God is speaking about his covenant. And most of the time when God says, look and remember, he's, he's fixing to do something. It's like God saying, look, I'm fixing to do something. Get ready for this. That's what happens all the time in the Old Testament. Jesus is doing the same thing here. Look, remember, I'm fixing to do something in the nations. I'm fixing to do something in the world. And what is that? It's that he's going to be with you always to the end of the age. And again, we come back to Sinai, and we come back to God's presence at Sinai and his covenant at Sinai, and God says, remember, I'm going to bring you into the promised land, and you've got to obey covenant. But if you don't obey covenant, is God with the people? No, he's not. He is not with the people. In fact, his presence is removed from the people. And here we see Jesus giving one of the most beautiful promises that we have, is that He's telling us to go out into the land, into the earth, into the promised land that he's bringing us into again under the authority of the Messiah and that he's going to be with us always. Regardless of if we break covenant or not, God is going to be faithful to his people. God is going to be faithful to his church. Jesus saying, I am always going to be with you. And then last, even to the end of the age. And this is, brings a lot of confusion, right? Because we all think, well, when's the end of the age? And we see crazy documentaries on Revelation. And we see Christian authors left and right predicting this and that. we've got to split up the ages. And everything's confusing. And it's like, well, what if we just understood what the end of the age meant to Jesus and his disciples and to the rest of Scripture? That makes the most sense. So what does that mean? And for the Jews, there's only two ages. Scripture only talks about two ages. There's the former days, and the former days was when the Messiah had not arrived yet. And then there was the latter days when the Messiah arrives. And so what Jesus said is, I've inaugurated the latter days, and I will be with you. And in Scripture, all things come To a close and to an end when there's a day of the Lord and the Messiah comes back to rule and reign for all of eternity, our great hope that we look forward to. But there's only two ages there's the former and the latter. The former is without Jesus Christ revealed, the latter is with Jesus Christ revealed. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you until I come back. It's a beautiful promise. And so, how do we take some of this um, teaching, how do we take some of this, even maybe some of this right theology as we look at the text, how do we take that and apply it to our lives? The first I'd say is this, the Great Commission is about the authority of Jesus Christ. It's not about our going. It's not about our discipling. It's about the authority of Jesus Christ. And isn't that a relief? Because when we make it about our going and about our discipling, we make it about our performance. And the last thing that God wants to make our faith about is performance. He wants us to make our faith about Jesus Christ and what Christ has accomplished on the cross. The finished work Christ accomplished. The death, the burial, and the resurrection And the proper response to the authority that Christ has been given is for us to worship. And so how does this apply to us? If that's something that you've never worshipped Jesus for what he's done on the cross, this is the gospel, it is the good news, this is how your sins are covered and paid for. And I'd love to talk to you after service. The person that brought you, if that's something that you want to maybe make a decision today to worship Jesus Christ for what he's done as revealed in scripture, I want to encourage you to take that step. The second thing, the great commission is given to the church, not individuals. Again, it is incredibly burdening to say, I've got to fulfill all that by myself. How beautiful is it to say, you know what, I'm going to walk with the people and we're going to fulfill that together. We're going to celebrate baptisms together. We're going to hear the word of God preached. We're going to receive the sacraments. We're going to be under the teaching of Christ. And we're going to do that all together. That's a beautiful thing. And so the Great Commission is given to the church. It's not given to us. And so our failure oftentimes is we have a very low view of church, right? We have a low view of church. And we have a high view of Christ. I think God wants us to have a high view of his bride as well. A high view of what he designated and called his disciples to do. To come worship him at a place. God wants his people to come worship him at a place. And the places where the gathered body gets a chance Again, to dwell, to hear Christ's teachings, to have sacraments, to worship Him. God wants us to have a high view of that. He also wants to have a high view of obedience. That the church is a place where Jesus Christ, through His spoken word, teaches us all that we need to do in life. Because who holds the authority in our life? Is it us? Or is it Jesus Christ? And oftentimes we come to church, we're like, oh, good word. But we go out and the rest of the week, the authority of our lives belong to us. Our going is dictated by our own schedules. Our finances are dictated by our own bills and needs and wants. Our lives are controlled by what we want and not what Christ wants. The Bible calls that idolatry. The authority in our life is now the idols instead of Jesus Christ. And the one place that you can come to hear Jesus Christ teaching week in and week out is the gathered body, a place called the church. So then we come to a, a tough question, a question we have to wrestle with when we talk about the Great Commission, because the Great Commission is, for all intents and purposes, one of the best punches to our gut to go reach the lost. What about the lost? What about the lost? Um, So I'll share a story with you guys. Um, Last week, my wife was uh, out of town. She was um, visiting her sisters, and I had seminary and uh, wrapped up with class um, on Friday night at like 10, um, stayed at the, the seminary to work on some other stuff till about 11. And so I'm like, gassed, I'm done. I'm like, I got to go home. And so I call an Uber because my wife's got the car. Um, And so uh, an Uber guy pulls up, his name's Ali. We get in the car and uh, we're driving back to our house. We've literally got a mile on Phillips and we're just kind of trading, small chat, small talk. And um, I ask him where he's from and he says, Iraq. And, you know, oh, well, why'd you come to America? And and uh, you know, he just there's no future there. And he'd been here in America for about six years. And um, we pulled up to the light at, at University and Phillips, and it was red. And I said, "Well, what do you mean Iraq has no future?" And um, for the next three minutes, because that's about how long it takes to um, drive from that light to my house, uh, he started crying. And he started talking about um, his son was killed before his eyes. Um, about eight years ago, um, that Iraq has no more professors, that the war has devastated that country, and that for him, nothing was left there. And um, even for him, that he was captured and held for two days um, at gunpoint by ISIS. And he said, I don't know how I left. And, And so we pull into our driveway, and he's got tears, and I've got tears. And my heart is saying, tell Ali about the future in Jesus Christ. And it's that awkward YouTube moment, or Uber moment, where where it's like, well, we pulled up. (laughs) What happens? And um, uh, he turned and just said, thank you for letting me talk to you about this. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And again, I'm like, like tears, like I don't know what to say. And I ended up just grabbing my stuff, going into the house. And when I got in the house, I just put my stuff on the ground. I, I just sat in my living room and I started to weep. Because I don't know if he knew Jesus. And I felt there in that moment that I just could have said, There's someone who has a future for you in Iraq. And I missed it. I missed that shot, I missed that opportunity. And even as a pastor, that's humbling to confess. Like, oh, I feel like I had like a a gospel home run there and I could have just swung and hit it and I missed it. I don't know if you guys feel like that way sometimes with interactions or people or moments or opportunities that you have. And as I'm crying in my living room and as I'm wondering what to do, God just said, pray for him. And I did. I prayed for Ali. And God reminded me, he said, Andrew, I have all the authority, so if I'm going to draw a lead to myself, I will. But pray for him right now. So I did. Uh, I called my wife, and you know, she was like, how was your day? You know, how'd you get home? And I was like, I was crying. Like, I've been crying for like the last 10 minutes. And I'm like, Uber ride. And she's like, what? <laughs> and it was just such an emotionally charged night. And I feel like, what about the lost? here's the crazy thing. As I was going, this happened. I didn't go specifically somewhere to share the gospel. As I was going on an Uber ride, an opportunity was presented to me. I confess just my failure to share because I want to be humble and honest that sometimes I don't share the gospel, and I wish I did. And so in the future, I know it's one of those things like, man, if I'm ever in an Uber ride with Ali again, <laughs> if I'm ever in an Uber ride where that happens, I'm going to take that opportunity. So, as you're going, what about the lost? The first thing that I'd love to challenge you to do is pray. We have an opportunity to pray for the lost. The second thing we have an opportunity to do is send. We have an opportunity to send missionaries, to send pastors to send mission teams to go share the gospel. We've got a team right now working in the panhandle with Samaritan's Purse, you know, helping people get their lives back on track, but then giving them a Bible at the end of all the work that they do in their house and sharing the gospel with them. We've had an opportunity to send teams, and part of that involves finances. You know, at Awaken, we don't make a big deal about um, you know passing cups or plates or offering but we do have a box in the back we say hey you're giving and tithing is between you and God as a church for us to go and share the gospel and to be a church that baptizes and teaches all that Christ has commanded we encourage you to give faithfully and generously maybe even sacrificially and then the last thing we pray we send, and then we go that there will be people that God calls in the church, as Paul writes to Ephesians, who are going to be evangelists, who are going to be apostles. And they're the ones who are going to go. But so are all of us as we go. So my prayer for you this week is that you remember that as you are going, the disciple. disciples, And as you are going, disciple, remember that that command is also for the church. And so one of the best ways to disciple is to bring people into church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you that your word teaches us week in and week out, that your word um, humbles us and loves us and reparents us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people committed to the authority of Jesus Christ. We would be a people committed to going out into the world. We would be a people committed to disciple, and we'd be a people committed to the church, your bride. And so Lord, forgive us if we have struggled with that. Forgive us if we've missed opportunities. Forgive me for missing opportunities. But God, encourage our hearts. Remind us that no matter what, though, we are still the people of God and your presence is always with us, even if we miss an opportunity, even if we make a mistake. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.